0: Good morning. Good to see you guys. We get to jump into God's word together this morning. I had a, a last week, as you know, I was wasn't feeling well. Uh, actually, I was feeling fine. I just didn't have a voice. That that was the bizarre thing. Uh, but I heard this this uh, no voice thing is going around these days. And and Shay always wanted to uh, apply the verse, be ready in season and out of season. So I I gave him the opportunity. I said Shay, this is your chance right here to be ready. And uh, of course, he delivered. Uh, a wonderful message last week on anxiety and prayer, and uh, so thankful for for that, but i 'm excited to get back into to first Peter. In fact, this will be the last message in first Peter. Yes, <laughs> did somebody say no, I love that. Yes, I love that come on that 's what i 'm talking about that 's how I feel. This is like a bittersweet morning for me because I feel like Peter and I are like good friends and uh, We've shared lots of coffee together late into the night, early into the morning. He's got ADD. I'm trying to figure him out as he's just like jumping from like topic to topic. And, and uh, we're coming to the end. And uh, my friend Peter here has is, is been so good to me that we're just going to go into Second Peter next week. And so I just can't give him up just yet. But uh, some of you were here, um, let's see, 16 months ago when we started uh, first Peter, uh, the very first message. Uh, then some of you jumped in in the middle of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, all along the way. Um, but for those of you who made it through all of it, we get to come to an end here with First Peter, and it has just been a a wonderful, wonderful, really life altering, changing book, even for myself. And I'm excited just to just to close it out, be the closer this morning. Uh, as we as we finish off this, this, this letter. So let me just do this. I'm going to read uh, the verse we're really going to hone in on, and that's verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10 and 11 together, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll study uh, wh- what God has for us this morning. This is what it says. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we have come in this morning desiring to worship you. And now we get to turn our attention to your holy word and for you to speak to us. And so, Lord, teach us new things, encourage us with old truths, soften the rough edges around our hearts, encourage us if we are weak, strengthen us. And in all this, Lord, we want to honor your son, Jesus Christ, through the hearing of your word, and we need your help to do that, in Jesus' name, amen. The topic this morning is this, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, As you know, Peter wrote this letter encouraging suffering Christians. Christianity was just beginning to spread like wildfire all throughout uh, Turkey and Greece. And these were newer believers. They were not trained. They were new believers. In fact, many of them were Gentile believers. There was no generational Christianity yet. There was no uh, Christianity that was cool and hip and normal. There was no grunge Christianity There was no hip Christianity. In fact, the only kind of Christianity there was during this time was persecuted Christianity, suffering suffering Christianity. To be a Christian was to be separated from the world. To be a Christian was to be a sojourner in the world, to be a citizen of heaven and not a citizen on earth. To be a Christian was to suffer hardship during this time. And what Peter does is he writes this letter then to these Christians who he knows are suffering a great deal, who are going through hardship, who don't have around them the depths of knowledge and understanding of believers around them because it was still a fairly new time for Christianity. And he writes this letter to encourage those Christians. It's an encouragement letter. You can even see it down in, in verse 12 of chapter 5. He even says that I have that written briefly to you, what? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. It's amazing that in a, an encouragement letter like this, that we can relate to these people so well. We can relate to the hardships and sufferings that even these people have gone through. This is why we love this book so much is because each week we're reminded and encouraged by the fact that there were others who had gone before us who had suffered, others who have gone before us who have been persecuted, and they were encouraged in the same way that we are to be encouraged even today. And these early Christians went through a lot, and we can relate with that suffering. Maybe it is even for you this morning that that you walked into church this morning spiritually weak. Maybe it is that you didn't walk into church, maybe spiritually you crawled into church. That this last week was just a difficult, overwhelming week. Maybe it is that you're spiritually just kind of hanging on by a thread, as it were, spiritually just, just feeling the weight of the world upon you. Maybe it is that this is just a season of hurt, a season of trial that God has put into your life. And we know this, as Job uh, tells us this, as surely as sparks fly upward, so man is destined for trouble that, that there's always some sort of trouble that's always right around the corner. Maybe it is that you had a dream that you thought you were going to succeed or do something well or you had this this dream in life that, that that you were going for and all of it is vanished. Maybe this week you were persecuted at work. Again. Maybe it is that your your marriage just, just isn't right. And you're not quite sure why but it's not just right right now. Maybe you have a desire for marriage and it's just not there. Maybe you're in a relationship conflict. Maybe you have financial pressures right now, a wayward child. Maybe you live in fear of your spouse walking out on you. We have all kinds of troubles. We have all kinds of hardships. And let me tell you, this is why First Peter was written. It was written for us to understand and know how to deal with those kinds of sufferings, to to know how to deal with those kinds of hardships. And the way that Peter encouraged the first century believers is the same way that he is going to encourage us this morning. And the answer that Peter gave to these suffering, hurting, persecuted Christians is this. Find your way back to God. God look back to the cross. The way that we deal with suffering and hurt and persecution in our lives, no matter what it is, no matter great or no matter how small it is, is we find our way back to the character of God. We find our way back to the work of Jesus Christ. We remind ourselves this, that we are identified with Jesus Christ forever. In fact, go back to 1 Peter 1 with me. You can't get past the first three verses of 1 Peter without him identifying God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, the work of the blood of the cross in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he says this, you have forever hope because your hope is in the living resurrected Jesus Christ. And that lays the foundation for this wonderful book on how we are to deal with our suffering, our hurts, and our persecution. It's all because we believe in the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. You always have hope. And then he says this. Your inheritance, your salvation, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading it's kept in heaven for you. No one can touch it. No one can take it. It's not going to fade away. It's waiting for you when you arrive into heaven. And then Peter immediately then jumps into talking frankly and honestly about suffering. And he says this immediately when it comes to suffering, that it will bring grief. You will be grieved by various trials he says suffering's going to come and it's going to test you. It's going to refine your faith. It's going to see that uh, if your faith is genuine. He says in, in chapter 4 and verse 12, not to be surprised by the suffering. Not, not to be surprised by the hardship that's going on. In chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, in fact, that it's the will of God that you suffer. A little background music there to... Uh Kind of set the mood. Verse 19, he says, you'll suffer. This is God's will that you'll suffer. And then he comes down to this, verse 6. With that in mind, he comes down to verse 6, and Peter's got one last paragraph, one last thought that he wants to teach you about suffering. One last thing. This is it. This is the the final out. This is the bottom of the ninth. The letter is coming to the close. He's got one pitch left, and this is what he says. Look at what it says in verse 6. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the last thought that Peter wants you to know in regards to suffering. This is it. This is his, his final two sentences here uh, in regards to the body of the letter before he gets to his, his final greetings. This is it. This is what he wants you to know, that after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace is going to restore you. That's the thought he wants you to have. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying this. God's not done with you. God is going to complete the work in you. He is going to see you through this hardship. He's going to see you through this trial. Why? Because he's the God of all grace. God's going to start what he finished in you. I think the original audience would have came to the end of this this letter and, and they would have heard this, and I feel like there would have been just this deep breath that kind of came over them, just kind of like a, okay, God's got this. Everything's gonna be fine because we serve of God who is known as, who is defined as the God of all grace. It's interesting in these, this last section here, even in this, this, the, these last, this last chapter here, we know that there's lessons in here that Peter himself has even learned. This doesn't just come out of left field. This is the lessons that Peter had learned uh, in his lifetime when it, came, when it came to these things. Peter understood trials. Peter understood suffering. Peter understood persecution. Peter understood anxiety. Peter understood Satan. In fact, if you remember, thinking back to the life of Peter, if you, go, if you could think back all the way back into the Gospels and the, the life of Peter, remember this, that Peter was once a proud man. In fact, there's multiple times throughout uh, the Gospels we're reminded of Peter being proud. The one that, that I can think of that comes to mind is when, when Peter was like, yeah, I, I can walk on water. I, I can do that. And then, boom, no, you can't, Peter. Or the time when, he's, uh, when he says to Jesus, he literally looks Jesus in the eye and says, I would never, never deny you. You can see the arrogance of Peter. And so Peter knew Uh, When he would write these things, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is something that he knew. This was a, a lesson that he himself had learned. Peter was anxious. In one moment, he was like, yes, I can walk on water. In the next moment, he was saying what? Lord, help me. I'm drowning. He understood anxiety. Peter understood the work of Satan because what? Peter himself was called by Jesus, what? Get behind me, Satan. He understood the work of Satan. In fact, even in Luke twenty-two twenty-one, 21, Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Imagine hearing that from Jesus. Satan has asked specifically for you, Peter. I mean, Peter's like, what in the world? Satan himself has asked for me. What, what'd you tell him? Like, what'd you say? I need to know. He understood what it meant that there's a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. Jesus told him, Satan wants to sift your faith. He understood it when he said all of these things. He understands humility, anxiety. He understands the work of Satan in his life. But he also understands this, church, that after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace will restore you. The God of all grace will confirm you and establish you and strengthen you. And Peter comes to the end of this letter as a as a four year varsity starter in arrogance and pride and suffering and and anxiety and experience and the knowledge of the work of the devil, and he just wants you to know this this is it church rest in this. This is what you need to understand, that God is a gracious God. He says it three times here, talking about the grace of God. If you see it in, in verse five, he says this, that God gives what? God gives grace. In verse 10, it's the God of all grace. And then in verse 12, it's what? The true grace of God. Peter can't get enough Of the grace of God. Peter was convinced theologically. He was convinced. In his experience. That the only way. That we would come out. Of the other end of our suffering. And our hardship. Was by the grace of God. That each day. God will give you. Enough grace upon grace upon grace to handle whatever it is that you're going through. There's that hymn that we've sung. It says this When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. Some of you are thinking, That's my life right now. It is a fiery trial. That is my pathway. Then what does it say next? Thy grace all-sufficient shall be my supply. The flame shall not hurt me. I only design my dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And so Peter says this as we jump in here now. And Peter says this after you suffered, what, a little while. Some of you are thinking, it doesn't feel like a little. And it doesn't feel like it's short. This suffering actually feels constant and consistent, and it is not going away. In fact, I would love for it to be a little while. Well, why does Peter say that? It, it's just for a little while, and he's actually said this already before, that this suffering comes, and it, it is a little while. All the way back in, in, in chapter one, he, he says the same thing. In this you rejoice, though, for, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. What does he mean? He means this. In relation to eternity, This is a very short time that you will go through suffering. I mean, we're talking about eternity here and the short amount of time that you have on earth, the amount of suffering that you have. He's not saying it's not going to be hurtful. He's not saying you're not going to need to grieve. He's not saying any of those things. He's saying, put it in perspective to eternity. It's a little while. He even acknowledges what's going to happen after you have suffered. A little while. And what does he say next? The God of all grace. The God of all grace, the unmerited favor of God. That word there for grace, it's, it's, it's used uh, already all the way uh, back in chapter 4 and in verse 10. It says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied Grace. This word here, it, it describes a, a multifaceted grace. You could picture it like this. An uh, illustration would be if, uh, if you had this massive color palette of every single color that you could imagine on this massive palette, and, and God has this brush, and, and for your trial and your suffering, he's taking the brush and he's mixing together all these different colors of grace. He's putting it all together and he's giving it to you. An endless amount of colors, an endless amount of grace, enough grace for everybody's specific hurtful trial that they are going through, specific to the suffering that you're going through. It is multicolored, multifaceted. It takes on all different shades, all different sizes. It is dialed up specifically for your suffering. It is the God of all grace. In fact, that word there, God of all grace, it means this, that God is both the possessor of grace and the giver of all grace. It's who he is, he possesses it, and he gives it away. And this grace, as you know, if the short little definition is just the unmerited favor of God means this, that God gives it away without condition. He just freely gives away grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot say, hey, today I'm, I'm going to uh, obey. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray and watch all this grace has come into my life. Uh, because at that point, you're saying, I'm trying to earn the grace of God. Once you try to earn the grace of God, you don't get the grace of God once you say, you know what, I'm just going to read my Bible because I love it. and I want to know who God is. I'm going to pray because I want to cast my cares upon him. And I'm, I'm totally in dependence on who God is. And God says that man, that woman sees it, right? They can't earn the grace of God. So I'm just going to give it to them favorably and lavishly because they live in dependence of grace. proud person says I can earn it. The proud person says I don't need it. The humble person says I'm in desperate need of it. In Hebrews, it says this. It says, let us therefore draw near. Let us therefore draw near. Let me just say something. Gods don't let you just draw near to them. In ancient times, you just didn't walk up to the king and say, hey, king, I need your grace. You didn't get that. You couldn't even get access to God. But our God says, draw near to him. Go to him. He invites you to come to him. He's very approachable. How do we go to him? We, we draw near to him with what? With confidence to what? The throne of grace. Why is it called the throne of grace? Because it is, it is here at the throne that grace is dispensed to you. That grace is given to you. It's there ready to be distributed to you. With confidence, you approach the throne of grace, the, where the grace is dispensed to you, that what? That you may receive mercy. And what? And may find grace. That which is empowers you. That which gives you strength for today. When to help in time of need, it comes just in, you could say, just in the nick of time, just when you need it most. And you go confidently to God and you find grace there for today. You say, oh, well, my problems are so big and it's lasting and it's not going to go away. Well, well, guess what? God gives you enough grace for today. And then tomorrow, what's he going to do? Give you enough grace for tomorrow. He's not going to give you grace for tomorrow until tomorrow comes. So just depend on it today. And when you wake up tomorrow, depend on it tomorrow. God's freely giving this grace away. Andrew McLaren says this, When surrounded by difficulties, crushed by sorrows, assaulted and battered by the artillery of temptations, when faint of heart and conscious of one's own weakness, When dull inactivity seems to have taken all warmth of feeling out of us and many defeats to have robbed us of hope, there is one strong tower into which we may run and be safe. The name of the Lord, the thought of this revealed character as the God of all grace is enough to to scatter all the black winged brood of cares and fears and to bring the dove of peace into our hearts. For that great name proclaims that his love is inexhaustible. Grace is love exercised to inferiors and undeserving persons. And if he is the God of all grace, boundless love for the lowliest and foulest is in his heart. The God of all grace has grace for all. That name too proclaims the infinite fullness of his resources. That great storehouse is inexhaustible. After all giving full, he works and is not weary. He bestows and is none the poorer. The stream that has been pouring for, for ages with a, a rush like Niagara and the flood today is as mighty at the beginning. It is fed from the eternal fountains in the mountains of God and cannot cease. I mean, just floods, Over and over, like the Niagara, he says, is it ever going to end? Does the grace of God ever stop? Will I ever stop getting the grace of God? And the answer to that is no, you won't. It just keeps coming like a flood. This is why we love this name of God, the God of all grace. You say, well, who is this grace grace given to? Look what it says. It is the God of all grace who Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In Christ. It is given to those who have been called according to his eternal glory in Christ. It's grace that is extended for those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. There's a special grace for God's children. I think, I think sometimes as Christians, we take it too casually that we are children of God. I think we just kind of walk around like, yeah, I'm a child of God. You know, and we just kind of, yeah, I'm a Christian, and we just take it so casual. Like, do you understand that you have a Heavenly Father who has bestowed upon you grace upon grace and all the spiritual resources that are necessary to live in this world? Do you understand? how much he loves you and how much he cares for you. We shouldn't walk around so casually saying like, oh, I'm I'm a child of God and that's it. No, understand what that means, church. Understand who you are in Christ. He's called you to this. That word there for called, you can see it there in your Bible, who, who has called you. That word for called has to do with an effectual call of God. A salvific call of God. Whomever God calls comes to him. This is the, the initiation of God in salvation, that it, that it begins with God's calling in your life. We know this in John 10, that the shepherd knows his sheep, and when he calls them, they come. This is what he's talking about, that, uh, that, that those who he has called out of darkness and into the light, as Peter has already told us this in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, it's the same word there. This word, he uses this word so appropriately here because he who has called us in his grace will supply all the needed grace until we are ushered into eternal glory. The same word, we'll, we'll look at it soon in 2 Peter. It's used in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. It says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Same word that that Peter used in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Why is this so important for us to understand? Here's why this is so important for us to understand, because everyone whom God calls finishes the race. He who began a good work in you will complete it. That's why this is so encouraging. It's so important for us to go back. You say, why is that? Well, why is that so that he who began a good work in you will complete it? It's because God is a God of grace. That's why I said at the beginning, the the whole purpose of this verse was to remind you and to encourage you that he's not done with you yet. He's going to finish the project. Unlike many home projects that you start at your house. Yeah, I knew I'd get a laugh out of that. Yeah, all these home projects, you're like, I'm going to start this. That you, like in 2020, when we were all in our homes, you're like, I'm gonna just, the whole house is getting remodeled. It's still getting remodeled. We're in 2023 20, right now. That wall still needs to get painted. Unlike home projects that need to get finished, God will finish the work He started in you. Why? Because you've been called by Him, you've been called into His eternal glory. Why? Because He is the God of all grace. It's a wonderful thing, this understanding of the perseverance of the saints. We persevere not because of our faith. We persevere because of God. This comes off right off the heels of a a mighty roaring lion, Satan, seeking to devour you. Prowling around, seeking to to take you down. He's not just trying to scratch you. He's not just trying to claw you. He wants to devour your faith. And what does God say? No, you serve a God of all faith and he called you and he's going to restore you. He's going to encourage you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to establish you. Have you ever done a a self-evaluation of your own heart and asked yourself this question? how is it that I'm still a Christian? Have you ever asked yourself that? How how is it? Can can I just say, if your answer to that question is, well, I'm a pretty good person. Of course I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian because I'm not as bad as the other person is i mean seriously like a a, a real self inventory of your own heart how is it that you're still safe how is it that you that you haven't gone the way of the sinner i mean if you if you really investigate your your own heart then you recognize this that that the heart is sinful that the thoughts aren't always pure That the acts aren't always righteous. How is it that in self-understanding your own heart, you haven't said to yourself, God, how is it that I'm still saved? Because I know my heart and I shouldn't be saved. I shouldn't be a Christian today. I should have lost my salvation this morning. That's what our our response should be. And when we get to that point, church, when you get to that point, when you say, you know what? I don't deserve salvation. I don't know how I'm a Christian other than this, by the sole grace of God. That is it. The only reason why today I can stand up here and call myself a Christian is not because of my own righteousness, my own deeds, my own thought life, or anything that I have done. The only reason why today I can call myself Christian is because I serve a God of all grace. And he looks at my life and he says this, you don't deserve salvation, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway. Where would I be? If it weren't for grace. I'd be wandering off in some sinful path. That's where I'd be. Because the reality is this. If I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it already. But I can't. I can't lose it. Why? Because God started something in me. And anything that God starts... He finishes. So Peter says this. You've suffered for a little while. The God of all grace, he's called you into his eternal glory. Into his eternal glory, what? In Christ? This is all on the basis of Christ? And then he says this. Here's what's going to happen. As you go through this suffering, you go through these trials and the hardships of life, what's going to happen? He will... Himself do these four things. Four things. A lot of commentary uh, I've read just kind of put these four things together, but I think they're good to, to separate. And he put four of them there for a reason. He could have just put one, I guess, but he put four. And so what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to restore you. This word here for restore is katartidzo. Katartizo. that's the Greek word for restoring. It, it, it means this. The, it's the fundamental idea of putting something into its appropriate condition. Putting something into its appropriate condition so it will function well. When applied to that which is weak and defective, it denotes setting right what has gone wrong to restore to a to, this, to restore to a former condition. This was used when you mend nets the fishermen would Catartizo their nets. They'd mend them back together and use them again. This is used uh, of setting of broken bones. When you, when you break a bone and you, and you got to get it set back into place, you, you catartizo the bone back into place so that it will function well again or restore it back to a former condition. And let me tell you something, Peter understood catartidzo. Peter understood this because, as I said, he looked at uh, that, uh, that woman in the eye when, when, when that woman came to him by the fireplace and said, are, are you with this guy, Jesus? And he said, No, I'm not with that guy. Are you sure? Because it sounds like you are. He said, No, I'm not, I'm not with that guy. And he got so annoyed with the woman, he, he put a curse on himself. denied him three times. And, and then in that moment of, of denial, we know this, that the rooster crowed. And what happened? He made, he made eye contact with Jesus. And then what happened? He wept bitterly. I always think of this. Why did Peter run to the tomb? Why, why was Peter the first one to run to the tomb? Because on Saturday, he was feeling the guilt and the weight of his sin. And he couldn't wait to see if this was actually true, that Jesus wasn't in the grave. Because I think Peter wanted to see Jesus. Because he wanted to know what was going to happen. He's probably thinking to himself, what have I done? I'm never going to use the ministry again. I'm never going to serve the Lord again. He spent all day Saturday feeling the weight of this. He was crushed. Finally, he has one interaction with Jesus. He's he's on the beach having breakfast. And what a wonderful sight. On the beach having breakfast. And what were they eating? Fish. Of course it's fish. They're having breakfast there and what does jesus do he catartizzo peter he mends him back together he restores him back first interaction with him he just says simply this do you love me do you love me do you love me why would jesus do that because he is the god of all Grace. That's why. He's the God of all grace. He restored him back together. You say, How is it that God would ever restore me? I've sinned a great sin. I've I've been in habitual sin. Grievous sin. How is it that God would, would ever restore me? Would he ever restore me? I, I certainly don't deserve to be restored. We'll, uh, we'll get in line with the rest of the apostles and the Old Testament saints who are saying the same things. I, I don't deserve to be restored. Why is it that, that God would do that? Because God is a God of all grace. And He will mend your life back perfectly It may not be exactly the same that it once was, but you will receive his grace to thrive in new ways. Secondly is this, not only will he restore you, he will confirm you. He will confirm you. By the grace of God, he will confirm you. What does this mean? It means to stabilize something, to support it. The grace of God stabilizes your life and it keeps you from falling over. That's the picture that you have. Maybe Maybe think of a, a, a child learning how to walk and they, they crawl up and they pull themselves up on the couch and they walk with this stabilizing thing right next to them, the couch, so that they don't fall over. Similar ideas is, there's the, is that the grace of God keeps you from falling over. There's these stabilizing pillars around your life called grace. It stabilizes you in your trials. It stabilizes you in your suffering. Keeps you from falling away, falling down. And this is what God will do by his grace. He will restore you. He will confirm you. Third, he will strengthen you. He will strengthen you. And and obviously through trials and tribulations and hardships, we all feel the, the, uh, uh, the fact that we feel weak all the time. Spiritually weak. The idea here is God giving... Strength to bear all the sufferings without wavering in faith. It means this, that the to cause someone to be or to become more able or capable. There's an implication here of and a contrast here with those who are weak. And Peter says this that the God of grace promises to himself provide the strength needed to resist the devil, to hold one's ground when attacked. I think the verse that comes to mind, and maybe it came to mind to you, is in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, when the apostle Paul said this, he said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, here it is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am contented with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. And it's the God of all grace who gives you that strength. It's by his grace that he gives you that strength. Not in our power. Gives you strength to handle anxieties and the pressures of the day. And when you're weak, you lean upon the God of all grace. And then lastly is this. He will establish you. He will establish you. This means in describing a foundation by which to build upon. It's a reference here of something that is permanent. It means laying a foundation. To place a firm, secure foundation in your life. He will establish you. He will will ground you. it will cause something to be firm and and unwavering. I think of, um, in fact, I just drove by him this morning, right here in downtown Bellevue, all these towers going up, these massive towers going up, and before they can go up, what must happen? They must go down, right? They must go down and set a solid foundation before they can go up to withstand the storms, the winds, the elements, and Really, I'm I'm no engineer, but my understanding is the higher they go, the deeper they must dig. The the more solid the foundation for for them to go up as high as they possibly can. But again, for them to go up, there must be a, a, a pounding down into the earth. And so as God is establishing you, he may just be pounding on your heart right now. He may be just pounding away with trial and, and hardship and a continued long persecution that is going on in your life. And what is he doing? He is laying a firm foundation by which you will be able to stand and withstand the schemes of the devil. He's establishing your heart. He, he wants to make you more effective. In greater ways and to do that he must first pound away at your heart A.W. Tozer says this it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply God actually God actually rises up storms of conflict in relationships at time in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character This is graduate level grace. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. You must pass this test first. This pounding and pressing in on your heart, it drives us to the bedrock of our faith. But church, you need to hear this. With all the pounding, he will not break you. He will not let your faith fail. He will not even let you fall over. He pounds the heart to lay the foundation. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He's establishing you. He's strengthening you. He's growing you. He's making you into the man or woman who can have greater effectiveness for the kingdom of God. We just can't assume when we become a Christian that all of a sudden we're gonna bear all this wonderful fruit without ever first being tested or tried for our faith. Because that's the grace of God in our life, preparing us and establishing us. And I can say this, As well, you show me a man or a woman who is foundationally strong and I'll peel back the curtain I'll show you a humble man who's been humbled by God. Notice this as well. You guys circle it, underline it, highlight it. Get out your colored pencils. So it says, will himself, will himself, we can't miss this, says the God of all grace, who's called eternal glory in Christ, will himself, that's, that's what I want you to notice, and here's why, this is personal to God, God doesn't say, hey angels, go and take care of that guy who's hurting, hey Michael archangel, I want you to go take care of him, God doesn't send somebody else to take care of your problems. God doesn't send somebody else to show you grace. You don't get the intern. You don't get the counseling pastor. You don't get the secretary or the receptionist. You get God. God himself. This is personal to God. This comes before all four of those verbs. Why? It is highlighting how Active God is in your life to do these things. God takes personal interest and energy in the carrying out of perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing each one of his children. This is how much God cares. He's working on your heart. And he's going to restore you, confirm you, and strengthen you. Because he who began a good work and you will carry it out to completion. This is the God of all grace. He goes on and he says this, to him, be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Reminding the readers this, that this is God's earth. It's not Nero's. Nero would eventually die. It's to God be the dominion forever and ever. It's not any other world leader's earth. It is God's earth. It is his forever and ever. And it's to him be the dominion forever and ever. He goes on and he says this in his final greetings. He says, Silvanus, a faithful brother, I regard him. I've written you briefly to exhort you and declare you of the that this is the true grace of God. This letter that I send you, this is the true grace of God. Here's our action. Here's our response, church. What do we do? We stand firm in it. We stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, referring to, I believe, as a church in in Babylon, not necessarily a a woman, but she, being a church, who was likely chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son, that Mark being his son in the faith says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me close with just this verse as we end out this incredible book. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says this. God is able to make all grace abound to you. That always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed. This is our amazing God. Rest in his grace every single day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can't think of a more fitting way for such an incredible letter to end, but to remind us of your grace. we need to think about you being the God of all grace more often in our lives. Too often we think about ourselves, we think about what we don't have, we think about the things we want to have, we think about the way people have hurt us. We have our eyes laterally on everybody else and somehow it, it points back to us and we've become a, a victim of society and this world and, and we forget that this is your world, and you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth for us to have a relationship with you, and by your grace, you have saved us, and by your grace, you will sanctify us while we are here, and through the storms of life, and through the trials of life, and the difficulties of life that ebb and flow and they come and go to small degrees and to great degrees through all of it, Lord. We can think back to this thought of who you are. You are the God of all grace and you're gonna restore us. You're gonna confirm us. You're gonna strengthen us and you're gonna establish us by your grace so that we can be the most effective Christians possible on this earth. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Help us, Lord, to remember who you are. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.